It was me and one other person, and it was a profoundly moving experience. I don't think you can create with the intention to manipulate people emotionally. You know, to be in the room when that happens and to see the see people transported is that's why you're there, right? Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Rob. On episode two, Johnny Kim talked about directing and on episode six, Matthew Justin shared with us his experience as a producer. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Steen to chat about directing and producing large-scale events. Jennifer is the founder of Skylark Events. She is an award-winning festival director, event director, and producer with experience in all event management issues, including programming, team building, production supervision, budgeting, client servicing, creative ideation, and technical execution. She is equally at home in the commercial, corporate, and nonprofit environments. Experienced as a leader and a collaborator, Jennifer is known for her innovative strategies, team motivation, and ability to deliver meaningful events and programs. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. We're so happy to have you. Oh, I'm so happy to join you guys. This is really exciting. Last year, the summer, I was asked for a project, an immersive experience, and I put, and I was briefed and told, dream big, don't be afraid about budget, don't, don't limit yourself. So I did. <laughs> and I come up with this beautiful project that has, you know, drones and projection mapping and all the things <laughs> and lots of, like, it was, it was all over the city and a lot of, like, different big crew big tech big ideas and then I never heard back but I did love my project and I was like well I don't have money I have a computer I have my bicycle I have this and that I am going to do that project and so I literally scaled it from Anna dream big to Anna do it by yourself with no budget <laughs> and I'm I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> That's amazing. But you know, you hit on something so important, Anna, which is I'm a fan of creating within constraint. I I am I'm a really big fan of that because if there are certain constraints that you have to work within, sometimes it sharpens your focus. You know, you're not just like woo all over the place you know creating out of a of the void you know sometimes it's a little more terrifying when people say whatever you want <laughs> you just kind of go uh you know you, you we need some form of constraint i find um you know some kind of brief some kind of goal or desire or you know something that we can serve um and the other thing just as you say is that those ideas you never know when you're going to use them again. I call them my, you know, my, uh, my uh, desk drawer ideas, you know, all the stuff you put away in your desk drawer. Like all I, and I'll tell you something, ask anybody you work with, you say, what are the, what are the, what are the ideas for projects you've stuffed away in your figurative desk drawer? They'll answer you right away. Oh, oh I've always wanted to do this. Oh, I've had this thing where I've, you know, it's like, and I encourage people go back to those ideas, go 
back to the ideas you have stuffed in your desk drawer because they're there for a reason. And you just, you never know when, when you, you'll be able to, you know, uh, pull them out and animate them. Very important. They're there for a reason. I'd like to ask you about live entertainment and arts in society from a perspective of what, you know, there's a lot more, even in nonprofit, there's a lot more corporate sponsorship rather than government sponsorship, as well as there's a lot more corporate companies doing immersive experiences and live events. And then and over the years, sports has become a whole lot more sponsor driven than people branding and wearing that. So like, What's your thoughts on, you know, the onset of that and then the maintaining of art in society and culture because inadvertently it is shaping what what people view as society, is what people view as entertainment. I see we have a responsibility to reflect society or, you know, keep keep society, you know, involved in the arts. But, you know, how do you, how do you view that sort of where are we right now with that, do you feel? It's so interesting because particularly as we've moved into the digital age, that really has revolutionized what we do in in some ways, just in terms of, you know, branding, sponsorship, you know, the multi-platform world, you know, has changed many things about how we're able to get our work done. And I think it also depends what country you're in. Because I think we all know that there is a vast difference in per capita spending on the arts, depending on what country you're looking at. It is a vast, vast difference. And so that in and of itself tells you, you know, a lot about the importance of culture, art and culture uh, within different societies and, and what it means you know, for those societies and how it's important. I mean, we all know that, you know, there's a desire to, I think sometimes, you know, artists are, or or the cultural community is called upon to, you know, be, you know, it's a funny choice of word, but to be performative, you know, uh, for their funders, you know, so that people can stand up proudly and say, look what, you know, look what our, look what our, you know, money goes toward. And that's a, that's a weird tension, right? That's a, that's a weird thing. So let's break it down. When you look at sport, for example, as you mentioned, you know, sport and entertainment are one and the same now, you know, for many years now, there's, there's been a desire to merge those worlds in a very powerful way. And again, in the digital realm, I mean, my goodness, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's massive. And, you know, I sort of cut my teeth in the sport marketing world doing these huge fan festivals so for 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 leagues like major league baseball i worked for for a number of years for about nine years and the national hockey league they wanted to create something experiential that extended beyond the arena beyond the field of play and they wanted to create these massive entertainment experiences to you know, extend the brand to to be a home for their corporate partners. There's there's no question. I mean, there, you know, it was a it was definitely a you know a commercial endeavor. And we sort of had to find you know, could we still create meaningful experiences for people, you know, with with within the confines of that very you know sort of corporate entertainment world. And I learned some really interesting things about that because I think you can. Uh, I think you have to be able to work with a team 
your corporate sponsorship department, you you have to find a way to, you know, be good partners to your sponsors without being, without bludgeoning your audience, frankly. Because it then, because it, it ruins the experience. You know, if I, you know, even for me as a spectator, if I'm getting hit on the head with so much corporate messaging that I've, I've lost the thread of the experience, right? You have to be really really careful about that. And so it means, you know, having really good, having a good working relationship, you know, with those partners saying, and, and being able to say to a corporate partner, um, here's how I'd like to best serve your interests, you know, and I'd, I'd like to best serve your interests by giving people a meaningful experience going from there. And we, we were able to, to do that um, with some, with, we, we sort of created a hybrid uh, entertainment where it was athletic clinics, but they were shows. It was the strange hybrid that we kind of, that kind of evolved out of that whole situation so that you'd have people sitting, you know, around a rank or around a baseball diamond and you'd have a coaching staff and you'd have professional athletes and you'd have little kids on the field of play and they would talk about what training meant or talk about with an, what an athlete's life experience was but it was crafted as a show so there was like there was tension and like is he going to be able to slide into home plate, you know, while the, you know, and we, and we, you know, have a host. And what I think I learned was the most powerful thing there was being able to put athletes, for example, in a different context. So going back to, you know, corporate partnerships um, and, you know, sort of the, the digital realm of sport, as you well know, athletes are trained within an inch of their lives now, media training, this kind of training, you know, to the point where there's nothing really spontaneous, you know, that we see from an athlete. So when an athlete does do something spontaneous, it's immediately, it goes viral because they did something human, right? It's like, oh my God, he did something, you know, that wasn't guarded. He ate a bowl of cereal. Fantastic. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So it and it was through trial and error. I'm sorry, this is a very long answer, but through trial and error, because I'm thinking my way through it, what we learned is that if you took someone, if you took an athlete and put them into the entertainment environment and tried to make them performers, it did not work. If you said, here's your script, you know, can you read this for the kids? You know, it came across as stilted and phony and I just want to thank, you know, my God, thank this, you know, credit card company. And uh, I'm really happy to be here today. But if you said, hey, do you want to come out and do a clinic and put a, put a, a baseball mitt on their hand and get them to tag five-year, five-year-olds out, you know, who were trying to, you know, slide into home. And then they would fall down and roll on the ground with them. And there would be a sense of play. And then you would look at what that meant to the people sitting in the stands who were hmm, learning something technical, which was our goal to teach them about how you slide into home, but also seeing an athlete having a genuine interaction with people and letting their guard down and laughing and truly playing because their contract wasn't on the line. You know, the incentives weren't on the line for them to hit X number of home runs that year. They could just play. That was a really powerful moment for me. And I realized that if we were going to do something in the future where sport and entertainment were commingled, we would try and create uh, a, an environment where athletes could play because that's why they became athletes. 
right? Because, because they loved to play. And so what that did is it, it helped people get in touch with their original love of the game because that's why they loved it. That's why they loved the game. And so for me, that was a huge lesson uh, in, in terms of what do I do in a highly corporatized environment in the sporting world that, is, that still has some, some genuine joy, genuine engagement. And that, that was a really big, that was a huge lesson for me. I don't know if any of that made sense, but there you go. No, it, it, it totally does. And I, I won't hog Anasan because I'm sure she's got a question as well. But um, I think that that's a, a good answer because, you know, in what you're saying is that actually then opens doors for creative people to be involved in those environments now, to be the storytellers. And I've, we've spoken to other people who have also had to do that in um, video games, you know. It's no longer just going, there, there has to be a story, there has to be a narrative, there has to be, and and what I love about the you know, audiences now, they've wisened up that gratuitous corporate branding. That, they're not going to accept that anymore. You have to be smarter in the way that you present that exposure and information and and being, like you said, being affiliated with a feeling and an emotion because, you know, we're shoved technology every day so we're not really surprised by technology. It's not like, oh, look, we used to be maybe 10 years ago you'd see this new thing and you'd be like, oh, wow, look at how that. But now it's like, oh, yeah, because the next tomorrow there'll be something new and tomorrow there'll be something new. So technology is not wowing us. Corporate brands are not wowing us and they're just giving their blatant messaging. So there lies in the open door for creative people to then create that connection with their audience and I, I love to see how that is being manifested at the moment in in various industries not only just sports but so it's good that you have articulated it that way because I do believe that's where that's where you can continue to insert culture and, and art into what we're doing day-to-day basis and I would also say you know there has been something really a really it's not new, but it's just more visual or more more um, uh, more present in the past year. Is how social justice lives in the sporting world now. You know, is is really extraordinary, and is um, is genuinely moving and genuinely galvanizing and genuinely inspiring. Again, you know, it's it's interesting that we have rediscovered a sense of admiration for athletes. In, in, a, in a very different context, you know, so that feeling that we may have had as kids where we idolized an athlete, you know, I almost, you know, I, I sort of remembered that feeling watching, you know, the athletes of the WNBA this, this past year. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty profound. It's really. pretty amazing, you know, and, and certainly we, we don't want to see that commodified, but it's, it's been really it's been a really uh, fascinating thing to participate in and to watch. And then inadvertently us t- uh, taking down those barriers and creating the story and the narrative, then the audience have been like, no, it's not only how you play the sport, but what you represent that is important. And, and so I find that that's a fascinating evolution really, isn't it? It really is because, I mean, I go back to what my grandfather used to tell me. My grandfather lived in Brooklyn, you know, watched the Brooklyn Dodgers and, you know, always used to tell me the difference back then between then and now was the athletes on a team lived in the neighborhood they played for, right? Everybody knew them. You know, they hung out. 
They hung out in the neighborhood, you know, so, so everybody knew those guys because they would come into the local restaurant or the local, you know, uh, businesses and they, they were part of the fabric of the community. And somehow some echo of that, I feel like some echo of that sense of them belonging, you know, being a part of the community is, is being recaptured in a way through, through social justice. I'm a, I might just be spinning yarns, but it, it makes me think of that for some reason. I see an echo of that for, for some reason. And, and, and that's because both are real. They're, you know, they're genuine. Interesting, eh? It's an, an interesting. And it also makes you realize, like, why, why do things go viral? I mean, I always, you know, I'm fascinated by that. Why do things go viral? And I think a lot of the time, things go viral because, the, because it elicits a true emotional response. So that's worth it's worth examining. My favorite viral. I can't remember what the guy. The song was. This guy was like on a skateboard drinking a, a juice. Did you guys Dude. see that one? Dude, this guy, the guy singing to Fleetwood Mac. That's what it was. Drinking the cranberry juice. And, and seriously, that I just I I don't know why it had an appeal, but it was seriously the funniest thing. And you just like this guy just living his dream, just, just skateboard and drinking juice. And then, like, um, that juice, what was it? I know it's a famous American brand. Just, like, the sales of that just went, like, up exponentially when that went viral. I just find that completely fascinating. <laughs> the sales went viral, but then, of course, you know what happened is that the, that company swooped in. I think he, they, I think they, they bought him a, a, like a, was yeah, it like a car or, or something? <laughs> or something? They bought him a car, and it's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Here we go. But, you know, <clears throat> he wasn't looking for all of that. He was just, you know what I mean? He was just going for a ride, singing and, and drinking some juice. And, um, you know, the universe brought some things his way, didn't they? It just brought some gifts his way. It was just extraordinary. He was just doing his thing. But then you ask yourself, well, what, what, what was it? What was that feeling of him that just just so many people just gave so many people pleasure, you know, just to watch him just cruising, you know, drinking his juice. I think there's that, that authentic freedom, you know, that complete enjoyment of life. It was the same about that Chewbacca, the Chewbacca mum, like when she first came out. <laughs> I mean, I tell you, what, I, cr- I cried like laughing the first time I saw that for hours. I just thought that was amazing. And it was just that, Pure, I think there's something that's so attractive about that pure enjoyment. And that's, you know, as artisans, that's what you're always trying to create and that feeling of connection and that feeling of enjoyment and release in, in the art. So it's funny that even the little smallest moments can be captured now on social media and make people feel that way, which is a good thing. Which is a great thing. And, you know, I will tell you, the, the work of art that affected me most profoundly most recently was a phone call. The public theater, you know, just finished their Under the Radar Festival of New Work. And they had, you know, one of the productions was called A Thousand Ways. And in that production, you, you know, you buy, you buy your ticket in advance and you are, unbeknownst to you, you are paired up with one other person on a phone call. And the phone call is moderated and led by this um, automated voice. You know, it's a very sort of robotic automated voice that asks you each a series of questions and takes you through a story and takes you through this whole journey. And there it was. It was me and one other person. And it was a profoundly moving experience. So there you go again, scale, right? You know, the sliding scale. No, really, I was just 
I mean, it could have been the COVID talking, it could have been the pandemic talking, but you know, at the end of it, I was, I was crying. I was so moved by what, because it, it sort of explored that whole notion of how, how do we actually connect with people? What makes you feel connected to another human being? And this is someone whose name I never learned. Uh, we never engaged in any of that sort of small talk of, you know, what do you do for a living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you live? That, that was, none of that was allowed. We could only answer the questions we were asked, follow the prompts, uh, and listen um, to the narrative that was, that was unfolding. And yet by the end of it, and it was, I think it lasted a little under an hour, I felt deeply connected to someone I will never meet. It was extraordinary, you know, and, and uh, whose name I will never know. And yet I felt profoundly connected to her and, and just wanted life to go really well for her. So go figure, right? But it's interesting that especially you bring it up since you work in large scale events, but that's a lot of what the opening ceremonies do and all these huge events do. They tap onto this core things that unite you to that other person that's sitting by you that you don't even know that you don't you might not even talk speak the same language live in the same country and yet you find this common thread that ties you together yes and that's what's so interesting about ceremonies and they are such a there's such a world unto themselves, you know, in, in, in that you, you're trying to craft these experiences, as you say, that, um, you know, don't always rely on language, that, that rely on some kind of universality and, um, you know, commonality. And, you know, that, that sense of um, a shared celebration because hundreds of millions of people are watching it and, you know, needing to experience it. It's, they are just, they're extraordinary. I love this idea of finding the thread in a one-to-one conversation or a one-to-the-world conversation. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because for whatever, you know, whatever happens between just those two people on that phone call, you're, you know, you, you're still, you know, there's something, it's related to, you know, 100,000 people in a stadium responding emotionally to something. No question. And the thing is, as we all know, you can't create, I don't think you can create with the intention to manipulate people emotionally. You know, so I, I don't think that you can create to say, ah, I'm going to do this moment because it's going to make people cry. Do you, you know what I mean? It, 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 at least it doesn't work for me. I mean, I, I can only speak for myself. But I do know when the when my better nature responds honestly to a concept, that's all we have to go on, right? As creators, that's, that's all you have. Like, you know, what I know that, um, you know, sometimes if I'm trying to come up with a, with a segment or a, a concept or, you know, something for a, a presentation, sometimes when I hit on it, I actually well up a little bit. And I think that's because the, the tuning fork is vibrating again, right? It's like, you know, within myself, I'm having an honest response to it. That's all you can put into your work. You know, you, you can't reverse engineer it. You just can create, you just create, 
you're just essentially creating a circumstance that you hope people will be drawn to, right? Like that's really what you're doing. If it feels like it resonates for you, you have to put it out to the universe. And that's the hard thing, I think, when you're making events and you're churning out shows and you're churning out these things, you're constantly trying to create these circumstances where people can connect. And I think sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss. And sometimes even like, you know, if I've joined a project that's necessarily like, you know, from the get that it's not going to hit its mark, but there's, you know, and, and where do you start to try and shift that or, or help advise on, on bringing that to a circumstance that's going to be more conducive to being um, one that you're looking for? I find that process quite fascinating. And then also with, if obviously, like, I like your concept of the tuning fork because if it isn't in alignment with your tuning fork, doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't going to resonate with a whole bunch of other people, right? So there's been times that I've been like, this isn't going to work. And then suddenly it's like super popular and you're like, okay, I'm not living on your planet apparently. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the, that's the beauty of it and that's the challenge of it. And that's why, you know, ego comes back into the picture because, you know, you do feel sometimes that you are, you know, you're, you're extracting something that is really from your core. That's something very, very dear to you. And then you're sort of putting it out there in the sun. I find that often because I, you know, mostly that's because I work with very multicultural environments, you know, and my idea of what is entertaining is very different to what local Hong Kong people are or when I've worked in the Middle East. And that's why a lot of the time I really land off base because my, my, my resonance comes from a Western background and I have learned now that, you know, I cannot predicate that. So I have to, like you going back to your, you know, you started with it, listening and hearing and resonating with the community around me so I can start to understand what resonates with them and what they place value on and therefore you can start to create environments that, that you know will resonate with them. But it's, it's, it's a, a very hard process to go through because that's really totally an eradication of all that you think that might be good and you still and then you have to find the balance because you've got to bring what you your experience in into that environment but also know that you can't force your environment on these people they have to come and meet that um, and find that synergy that's a fascinating process you know, I, I, I did that sort of on a microcosmic level for the years that, and I'm very grateful for it now, for the years that I worked for Major League Baseball, and I was doing a lot of large entertainment programming for them for these festivals that they would do. Uh, typically, it was around the All-Star Game, you know, so, so in mid-July, and we would go to a different American city every year. And one of the joyous things about that, it, and that was back in the day where we would have to live in that city for many months to put these events together. We, we weren't working remotely, right? It's like, Hey, you know, enjoy your four months in Cleveland. And <laughs> sorry, Cleveland, I'm just kidding. What was fascinating about that, this is exactly what I did. I mean, I would spend my time in these things and in the advanced visits prior to sort of landing there for good, you know, you start to learn culturally what is precious to each of those cities because of course it's a vast country of vast cultures and that was the best part because you you got to sort of dive into the community and connect with sort of your cultural guides people that you would find you know who would you know help you um um, really swim in the local culture and and then start you know working with people on on building the programming and and it was that that was the best that was the best part. 
you know, in some cities we would, we were doing theater pieces in some cities we were doing a concert series on a, on a huge outdoor stage. It would depend on the city, it would depend on what, you know, what that city needed. But that was, that was fantastic. That was the best part of it. Yeah. And I guess you, I mean, as you point out, you don't necessarily need to be in a different country because there's many different subcultures across America as well. You get Californians are not like Texans and Texans are not like New Yorkers. And, you know, so it, you are really landing in different um, cultures there and what's, what, what's important to them varies. And there's a strong regional tradition based on who settled there, where they came from. Right. You know, cause you could, you know, you could have a, you know, I mean, oh my gosh, I can't even think of specifics right now. But you know, it it, it that 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 makes up the 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 sort of the tapestry, you know, of of any given city that you're in. Never mind a state. Fascinating because of who who are the settlers there. Very interesting, and and never mind who are the settlers there. Who was there first, and what's their culture? Like that's that's the other part that that's the other massive part of of uh, creating. Um, cultural programming anywhere you go what would you say is the thing you like the best about your job hmm the thing I like the best about my job is um absolutely the the camaraderie I would say it's it is that sense when you're with you know a fantastic team of people you know and and there's um there's a there's a shared enjoyment of what you're doing and everybody is accomplished because that's the other beautiful thing. When you start to work in the world of ceremonies um, and large events, you know, there are, you're, you're working with people at the top of their game. So you're constantly learning from them. I'm constantly learning particularly about technology, right? That is the most fun. So I would say my favorite part of the job is it's, it's the camaraderie. It's the it's the fellowship. There's no question. That's what makes it meaningful. That's what you know. That makes it, makes it feel worthwhile. You know, and obviously, you know, there's there's nothing like there is nothing like standing, you know, at the back of a house. You know, for example, when you know a sixty piece orchestra uh, begins, you know, and um, an extraordinary concert begins. And you look at people's faces, you know, that's, yeah, for me, especially when it comes to music, um, we haven't talked a lot about music, but that's, that's certainly where my heart is. And there's, mm, you know, to be in the room when that happens and to see the, see people transported is, that's why you're there, right? That's, that's the best. Amazing. And if you could change something about your job or the industry, what would it be? Yeah. What would I change about it? I, gosh, you know, I'm a little bit stumped. I have to tell you, I, I don't know. It's just so vast and um, multifaceted. I mean, okay, here's what I would change. Okay. I've got something D during the pandemic. Uh, I live in Canada. I live in Toronto. And during the, during the pandemic, something kind of extraordinary happened that felt very new to me, which is that <clears throat> self-employed people <laughs> mattered in terms of sustaining the country and sustaining everybody in it. I felt like this was one of the first times where self-employed people and by extension, self-employed artists were receiving the same support, the same 
you know, uh, financial uh, support from the government as everyone else. Because I think when you grow up in the arts, you feel like an outlier sometimes. And again, I'm only speaking from what I understand in my country. In other in other countries, artists are better supported. Artists, uh, uh, you know, a life as a as a cultural worker is as you know weighted with value as anybody else. You know, but I do find that in 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 other cultures, it's it is still denigrated somehow. Is like, well, you'll do it for free, right? Because you love it. You know that whole thing. I remember getting into you know fights with my bosses say, you know, at a sports league who would say, well, can't you just hire actors? Just bring them on for free because, you know, that's what they love to do. I said, sure. Well, the next time your toilet explodes, um, ask a plumber to come and fix it for free because he loves to, because, you know, that's his calling that he, lo- he loves being a plumber. And I, so if I could change anything, it's that. It is that um, people who, you know, bend their energy and their life's work, you know, uh, to to an art uh, creative pursuit or an arts, you know, a life in the arts that that it's on par with any other profession. That it has the same gravity and the same um, you know impact. You know that it's 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 not. I don't know. Do you know? Does that make sense? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? That in some cultures, oh, Anna's nodding her head. She's nodding, nodding, nodding. Yeah, you know. Um, and and that was really that had a massive impact on me. You know, this past March. Where our government said everyone who's self-employed is, you know, is is under this tent as well. That was huge. And I'd like to see more of that. We had the the similar sentiment with one of our podcast uh, guests uh, just a week ago, who's a Broadway performer, dancer, you know, and uh, you know the reaction to, oh, well, you just you, you don't get to perform on stage anymore, and that's a shame, you know. But she's like, but you don't understand. That's where I get my salary that's where I get my insurance that's where I get my retirement like it's my I know you see it in your world that's entertainment and that's but it is my work it's my life and that's how I and that's how I sustain myself and there is that perception of there needs to be that mystery taken away from the fact that we're over there doing our enjoying our lives but we're actually working our asses You know, I will tell you, in my early days as a stage manager, when I was first, you know, learning the theater and and working as a stage manager, I soon came to realize that the actors that I loved the most, super talented, super committed, really disciplined, dedicated, but they treated it like a job. And I noticed those were the kinds of actors I always used to gravitate toward as a stage manager and later as a director. Those are the people I loved to work with, you know, because I have nothing against people who see it as something different and more ephemeral or maybe more spiritual or however that is, that is up to everybody. But I used to love the actors who quote unquote punch the clock. Like this is my job. You know, this is, I'm proud of it. I am proud of my work. This is what I do. There was something about how they did their work that was really fascinating to me. You know, that's, that maybe that's where some of this came from. I don't know. Also, hijinks. I just want to say the other thing that's best about doing this 
this job, one of the best things about working in our industry are hijinks. Our miss is mischief. <laughs> mischief, hijinks. I have a whole list of those. We'll have <laughs> to know. talk about those another time. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I actually think that's a whole other podcast. We, we do, is, I, I, told, I told Anna A. Yeah, we do need to do a, a podcast on hijinks because I reckon I've, I've got a whole toolbox <laughs> of those. <laughs> God. Do you know, I do think that, you know, and I think as we all know, for anyone who works in the industry, put two people from the entertainment industry into a room and within 20 minutes, they're going to tell you about the time the set blew up, someone's pants fell down, you know, <laughs> what they did to somebody on purpose on stage you know, to get back at them, right? The horrible things we've all done. Um, that's part of it. There's no question that's part of it. Also, it legitimized my need to steal. I'll leave it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So if you if you trend towards you know a kleptomania, uh by all means a life in the theater does. <laughs> a life in the theater. Oh, so good. So where can the audience yes. see your work or get to find Scarlet Skylark events? They cannot right now. <laughs> uh, the work I'm doing right now is is actually uh, uh, because of we are in the time of COVID. Um, I am uh, honing my skills in um, digital events, and they are mainly in house. Uh, some of them are quite large scale and and um, you know very technically challenging, but they are for the most part in house events, internal events. So I'm sorry that you, I don't have anything to share with everybody right now, but um, uh, stay tuned. I have some ideas. I pulled them out of my little uh, desk drawer. And uh, who knows? I'm, I'm not saying them out loud because one of them is like really fun. <laughs> and I will tell you that because of the path of my career, um, this is shameful, but I, I, I have never needed a website. I'm just really lucky. That's, that's it, y'all. I'm just really lucky. I, because people are like, I'll oh, just call Jen. She'll do it. <laughs> so how can people call you and find you? Oh, what a good question. Well, I guess uh, uh, LinkedIn. Sure. I guess that's my most public. I think that's my most public facing persona. I, I imagine would be, uh, would be me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Crazy. Isn't that crazy? Jen Stein Skylark on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you very much. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. What a pleasure. Same. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There's a link in our podcast description where you can send us your podcast requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcasts for free. And if you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast description. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Zare for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast. Thanks for listening.